0: Hi listeners, Benjamin here. Earlier in the week you heard a shortened version of my interview with XKCD's Randall Munroe, all about his new book. He told me a lot more stories than I was able to fit into a regular podcast piece, so here's a longer version of our chat. As much of Randall's work is very science-based, I began by asking him about his scientific background.
1: I did a degree, an undergraduate degree in physics, and then I worked for a little while uh, in a NASA robotics lab. I feel like I have a lot of friends who are scientists, so I'm always uh, careful, you know, to say that I don't think I really counted as a scientist. But I do like saying if I have to pick something, I might say roboticist, mostly because that's a really cool title. And I don't think it means anything officially, but uh, I've always liked that word.
0: Well... We're here today to talk about your new book, which I have here in front of me. It's called How To, Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real-World Problems. What are some of the things you've looked at?
1: I took a lot of simple problems that you might encounter in everyday life, like, you know, the the hassle of packing to move or um, how to make friends with people. And I, I'm i one of those people who will always find a much more complicated way to do things that I have convinced myself is going to be worth it in the long run. And so I'll say, okay, I know this looks like it's too elaborate or too complicated, but once it gets going, you'll see what a good idea this was. And inevitably, I'm still trying to get it working when the people who are solving the problem the normal way are already done. But I find that when I do that, I often learn something really interesting that might not help me with that problem. But is useful for something later on.
0: Yeah, and I I would say all of your questions, then I've got some in front of me here, how to jump really high, how to play football, which works on both sides of the Atlantic, which is great, uh, how to predict the weather. I mean, they all have sensible starts and then things quickly veer off into maths and physics and ridiculousness.
1: Yeah, I usually start somewhere uh, kind of straightforward and then I often find, you know, I'll come up with some weird idea and then, of course, I just want to know, would that actually work? So my friend had... uh, ants that were in his house and he texted me and said I'm so frustrated trying to get these ants out you know we've tried all these different things could I just build a moat of lava and then that the ants couldn't cross how much would that cost and right away I was like I don't I don't know that's really interesting and then it's like getting a song stuck in your head uh, when I hear a question like that. I just like I need to know the answer. And so I I think I sort of stopped on the sidewalk and started researching like lava heat flow and the engineering involved in uh, keeping a moat of lava hot so that I could come up with a price estimate.
0: Well, Randall, what does your sort of research process look like? You start with a blank piece of paper and, and a question mark at the top.
1: Sometimes I'll have read, you know, a research paper or I'll have a book on hand that I think has an answer in it. Um, Sometimes I'll search for scholarly papers on the subject, and a lot of the time they'll be fun to read anyway and have something interesting in them that takes me down a new rabbit hole. Sometimes the questions are strange enough that the best place to look isn't uh, necessarily a research paper or a scholarly source. Um, At one point, I remember I wanted to, to find out whether or not pollen when it falls from trees is particularly flammable. I thought it might be because it's, you know, dusty particles, but I wasn't sure. And I was reading through a couple of papers on pollen and fire risk, and I I was having trouble finding a straight answer to whether pollen would catch fire if you just lit it on the ground. And then I realized, wait a minute, the world is full of teenagers with (laughs) matches. And I just went on YouTube and searched pollen flammable and found all these videos of people lighting pollen in their driveway on fire and causing a huge, dangerous, you know, foosh. And that was a much faster way to find the answer uh, to the question, is pollen flammable than a research paper?
0: In many cases, a lot of these solutions, then, I mean, they, they rely on sort of existing physics equations. I think one of the ones that sort of stood out to me was how to move house. And uh, by sort of plugging in the drag coefficient and fuel mileage of actually physically trying to move your house in a lorry, you can get an actual answer to to this problem.
1: You know, I know that people sometimes move their houses on the backs of those flatbeds because I've seen them. And I was wondering, what kind of gas mileage do you get when you're doing that? How much, uh, you know, miles per gallon or litres per hundred kilometres? And the first thing I kind of naively just typed into Google, house gas mileage. And Google was like, okay, it sounds like you're asking about how much gas a house will use in a year. And I, I just wanted to like reply to Google, like, that would make sense. But no, I mean, the other thing. <laughs> but what I found was that it's actually pretty straightforward to plug in uh, the main source of inefficiency when you're going at speeds on a large, fast road. The main place you're losing energy is drag in the air. And so you can just plug in the drag force on a house moving at highway speeds. And then, you know, just plug in the energy density of fuel and you just get an answer in miles per gallon or litres per hundred kilometres.
0: Well, what is the value of talking about, well, the, the absurd in many cases? I mean, you talk about opening water bottles with a nuclear bomb to fill up a swimming pool, for example. What's the value of using these scenarios to answer questions?
1: I think that it lets you explore... Ideas that would otherwise be kind of abstract. So in the example of using nuclear weapons to open water bottles, for one thing, it it sounds ridiculous, but it is something that the US government actually tried in the uh, you know early Cold War era. Now, they were actually trying not to open the bottles. What they did was they set a bunch of bottles out near uh, ground zero. They mostly used beer, I think, but also carbonated beverages, and uh, measured how well they survived the blast and whether the bottle was ruptured and whether the liquid inside was still drinkable. And the, the reason for this was that they wanted to test whether or not the commercially packaged beverages in a town after a nuclear attack could be used as a potable water source for people who needed hydration, And that that was at least the reason the project gave. I've always wondered whether or not the whole thing was just concocted when someone was caught buying drinks on their government card. But for one thing, exploring this idea is a way uh, like I learned this history that I didn't know about, you know, something that sounded ridiculous and frankly is ridiculous, uh, but was something that the Cold War uh, era made governments take seriously, which is sort of incredible and tells you something Interesting about governments, if nothing else. And it also is a way to learn about uh, nuclear weapons and about glass bottles. They found that in general the bottles weren't broken unless they were knocked off the shelves. Um, And It's also just fun. Like, I find that even when a question is not practical at all, I get excited about knowing the answer. And if I find out there's a way to get it, especially if it involves some interesting research, uh, I just really enjoy it.
0: And military testing is something that does come up again and again and again. You know, can we do X? Well, it turns out the military already tried to do that in 1972, and the answer is no.
1: I've definitely noticed that there are a lot of really strange things that, you know, the U.S. military and the Soviet military and stuff tried during the Cold War. It seemed like famously a period of a lot of tension and a lot of heady, you know, new scientific ideas. So there's just a wealth of, of weird things people have tried. Um, some of the most powerful radio broadcasts ever sent from Earth came from the radar that they used to look over the horizon when they were just constantly scanning for missiles. And so I've wondered if, if there were aliens out there looking at Earth uh, at the right time, they might see these incredibly bright flashes of radio wave uh, radiation. And, and I wonder if they could ever figure out that they were seeing a radar dish sweeping back and forth because of tension over nuclear weapons. And there's just a ton of these reports from these projects that are sitting around. So sometimes I'll be, you know, searching for something or, or reading about something and find a reference, you know, oh, here's a report that answers my question. Like in my chapter on how to lift a house uh, to move it, I was looking at what are the heaviest helicopters. And it turns out there aren't really any helicopters that are heavy enough to lift a house. But there was a project to try attaching two helicopters together end to end so they can lift twice as much.
0: I mean you've got some uh, some guest stars as well you know as part of your book this time around Randall uh, notably Chris Hadfield an astronaut and Serena Williams one of the greatest tennis players of all time um and and they got involved too and seemed to be quite good sports about it
1: Yeah I sent a note to um Serena and her husband and I was wondering if they had any um videos of Serena trying to hit a target that I could use to get measurements from and it was for a chapter on how to hit a drone with sports equipment. So I was hoping that I could use this to calculate how effective Serena would be at hitting a drone uh, with a tennis ball. You know, what her hit rate would be at various distances. But to my surprise, she actually volunteered to hit an actual drone. So her husband got a drone with a broken camera and flew it up over the court during one of their practices. And she served tennis balls at it until she shot it down. And I was just... uh, over the moon. They went above and beyond.
0: I mean, Chris Hadfield also, I would say, went above and beyond <laughs> with some of the things you asked him.
1: Yeah, I think that the chapter where I talked to Chris Hadfield was probably my single favorite part of the book. I did a chapter on how to make an emergency landing, and Colonel Hadfield is a test pilot in addition to being former commander of the International Space Station. And so I asked him about unusual landing situations. Like, uh, how would you land if you had closed your sleeve in the cockpit door and you couldn't reach the controls, but you could throw something at them? Or what if you uh, had to land on a moving train? Or what if you were stuck on the outside of a plane crawling around? How would you land from there? I started off with like what I thought were the least ridiculous questions, and I was sort of going to slowly ramp it up until... I asked him something where he just said, oh, that's the most ridiculous question I've ever heard and just hung up on me. To my surprise, he just answered every question. No pause, no hesitation. When I asked him the first question about if you have to land in a cultivated field, which crop is the best to aim for? And he just immediately you know, says, well, I fly small planes, and that's the kind of stuff we think about all the time. When you're driving to the airport, you keep an eye out. You look around at the fields and think, if I have to land there, uh, can I do that? You know, How high are their beans right now? Have they brought in their hay? Uh, has it rained recently? Because you can't land in a muddy field. And he just went on like this, laying out answers to every stranger and stranger question. And in some of them, he said, oh, you, uh no, I don't think there's any way to do that. You, uh, you, you could certainly try, but I don't think the landing would be survivable. And then other questions that I thought were ridiculous, like, could you land on a moving train? He said, oh yeah, people have done that. Uh, flatbed trucks, too. You see that at air shows sometimes. And it was all very matter of fact. And because, you know, he's such an astronaut, he has that air traffic control kind of voice, that it took me a little bit to realize he was really enjoying it. Um, and he had a flight he was going to. He actually kept talking to me. He said, oh, no, hang on. I'm just going to scan my boarding pass and I'll be right back. And then he continued talking to me as he walked down the jetway onto a plane. And I think at that point, I finally had to I had to end the interview because I didn't want him describing how he would land a plane if he were trapped on the outside as he walks down the aisle past all the other passengers. uh, I, I was like, we must be freaking someone out here. So I think that was the most fun conversation in my book and I ended up just printing it as an interview you know almost verbatim and illustrated them. I realized afterward that maybe my plan of trying to fluster a test pilot by throwing extreme and unusual situations at them without warning might have had some flaws.
0: Well there are a few things that are in the book. Was there anything that didn't make the cut that you desperately wanted to include but it just didn't quite work for whatever reason?
1: There was a chapter on how to dry out your cell phone if you drop it in the water. And the problem with that chapter was I had all these silly ideas, but it's also a question that people urgently want to answer sometimes. And, and I felt like it was hard to split the difference between giving people a fun and interesting answer and giving them a useful answer where they don't already know uh, how to do the thing. Uh, You know, and I'd read about all the things about you put your phone in a bag of rice. Why does or doesn't that help? And while I was writing it, someone dropped their phone in the water. We were in a living room and they dropped it in the sink. And I jumped up and I said, oh, you know what? I've just done a whole bunch of research on this because I have been writing a book chapter. And then I realized, you know, but I still am not completely decided on what the best thing to do is. And with something like that, I realized I've got to either give a really good, useful answer or a silly and scientifically educational one, but it's hard to split the difference. Whereas something like how to ski, there are plenty of people out there who can teach you how to ski the right way. You know, it's not something that everyone's desperate to know and doesn't know how to find out. So I feel fine giving my terrible advice on skiing as someone who has still never put on a pair of skis.
0: Your book is absolutely rammed with facts. I mean, what's the one that kind of blew your mind the most that, you know, if our listeners to hear one fact, what was your favorite?
1: Uh, One really uh, surprising fact I learned was in the chapter on how to deliver a package from space. So if you're in orbit and you want to deliver something to someone on Earth, how do you throw it out of the space station and protect it so that it will uh, make it down to the surface without burning up? Almost anything you throw out of the space station will burn up in the atmosphere, but Certain very thin and lightweight objects may slow down and descend without ever reaching high temperatures. So if you wrote a message on a piece of paper or a piece of you know, baking paper and it were curved right, you could potentially toss it out the window of the space station and it would just flutter all the way to the surface intact. And that boggled my mind. I had no idea. Uh, I would have assumed the paper would have burned up even more easily than uh, a spacecraft. So there was actually a project to launch paper airplanes from the International Space Station by some Japanese researchers, uh, which sadly uh, never went through.
0: Goodness. I mean, I guess if we ever see a piece of paper flushing down with
1: help and just an arrow pointing up, then we need to, uh, to, <laughs> to have a close look at it, right? Yes. The return to sender is a little bit more difficult.
0: I, I mean, who who are you pitching this book Because you have the very, very simple stick figures that you've drawn, and then you have these kind of multi-layered kind of nested equations as well. What's the audience for this, would you
1: say? You know, I never really know exactly, you know, who the audience is, who I'm aiming it at. Uh, One thing that's really surprised me with doing books is how many people tell me that their kids read them. It's just not something that had really occurred to me, you know, because I, I don't know anything about kids in different ages. Um, the thing that's really surprised and delighted you know, me about doing these comics and doing these books is discovering how many other people there are out there who are excited about the weird science stuff that I'm interested in. And in, in particular, like even people who are, we don't have a lot in common, you know, or what, people from other countries or people, you know, who are different ages or something. I feel like everyone is kind of curious what would happen if the moon crashed into the earth, you know, like that kind of thing. It, it seems like it kind of appeals to everyone. And, and, and there's something really nice about that, uh, knowing that I'm not the only one out there. So that's been really fun.